0: Hello and welcome to the Pinnacle Podcast brought to you by Pinnacle.com, the online bookmaker that offers you the best odds, the highest limits and a unique winner's welcome policy. I'm your host Ben Cronin and I know we've kept you waiting a while but we're now back with an extra special episode. Joining me today is a man who's worked on Wall Street, he's built a successful baseball betting model and written a book about it and now he's gone and done the same with golf. It's Joe Peter.
1: Good morning, Ben. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for uh, having
0: me on. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Really looking forward to this one. Just to kind of to get us going, I know you've kind of written a book, which we'll we'll probably talk about in a little bit more detail later on. And you've actually written some stuff for Pinnacle as well. Um, for anyone that's listening that that hasn't heard of you, can you just give us an intro into into your background?
1: Absolutely uh, right. Um, I was a full-time uh, financial professional uh, on Wall Street in uh, here in America, and was war- had worked here about 15 years. Um, and I had a very quantitative background. I was an accountant before I came to Wall Street. Um, I was a practicing CPA doing tax work. I wanted to be involved uh, trading stocks, and got myself up to Wall Street, and. That was where I saw, you know, I didn't see any deviation from that, but I had an accident in New York City in 2011 that laid me up. I was actually in a wheelchair for a while and unable to get on a plane uh, and, and reunite with my family. And while I was laid up, I had an idea to write a book. And the book was Trading Bases, um, and it really examined – the purpose of the book was really to examine the critical reasoning overlap between my profession of asset management, um, the moneyballization that had taken over baseball, and sports betting. And those were three topics that, you know, if you knew me at that point in my life, you knew that that book was a write-what-you-know situation because those were really the three passions in my life. Uh, You know, from from being a little kid, it was baseball, and then, uh, you know, as I became a professional, uh, it was being in the financial industry, and if you've spent any time on trading desks in the financial industry, you know that sports betting is a big deal, Uh, and obviously that's true. Uh, even maybe even more more true in the financial district in uh, in london uh so those I, i tried to put all three of those together in a book in a very analytical way uh and sort of show how there was critical reasoning overlap between all three of those endeavors uh and that was the book and uh uh, the book uh, still sells to this day. It's it's six or seven years old, um, and that uh, you know that has sort of led to this hobby of still staying involved in the in the uh, sports betting world. And yeah. I followed that up, I should say followed that up with a book on golf uh, this last January uh, that really focuses, again, it's very data-driven and it focuses specifically on the Masters, which is coming up in a couple of weeks.
0: I can certainly testify about uh, trading basis. I've read it myself. I, I wrote a review for it for uh, Pinnacle a little while ago, actually, yeah, and there's definitely, it feels like there's something in there for everyone, where it's someone who's completely new to, to baseball and betting right through to anyone that kind of does it as a job. It's certainly um, certainly interesting read. Thank you. Um, so the with the betting side of things, you obviously said there's the ties there with the the financial industry and your your profession at the time. So were you, before you really applied your knowledge from finance to betting, were you were you betting at all before that?
1: Absolutely, and I try to make the distinction in the book, uh, really in both books, between the difference for betting as entertainment, which I have done for. Decades, maybe two decades, right? And really betting with the idea of compounding capital, um, really betting as an investment. Uh, and that's what I – once I got into baseball betting, I tried to put away the entertainment portion of the industry, which is fun. And and I, I in no way look down on that side of the business. I view that disposable income that, that people uh, – you know, get pleasure from by betting on a sporting event that they're either watching or they're emotionally invested in. Um, I compare that to no different thing than spending money at the movies or spending money on video games, or it's a direct competitor now spending money on uh, fantasy sports. Um, So that has always been a part of my life, and that drove my fascination with sports betting. The model building that came with baseball was a separate endeavor. That I was going to let my financial industry, my sort of asset management or asset allocation skills was going to drive that endeavor. And it's the same sort of way I'm approaching the golf too is, hey, let's see if we can build a model um, and let's see if, if, uh, if there's uh, you know, when I always say an edge, what I'm always referring to is let's see if we can get our forecasting error smaller than the markets. Um, and then, We'll figure out if we can make money from it. But that's sort of the two ways I've approached it. But yes, I've done it forever. And if I hadn't done it as a hobby, I probably never would have picked it up as, as a model building exercise.
0: And it seems that kind of when you when you started getting serious about betting, if you like, when that first book came about and, and reflecting on your experience, obviously the, the sport of baseball, was that because the passion was there for the sport in itself or was it because... When it comes to building a model, perhaps that that sport is um, easier to build a model around.
1: Yeah, I think the uh, uh, the latter there was the most important. The ability to model baseball outcomes uh, is much easier uh, than I think other sports because baseball is a team sport. Well, it's, it's actually it's an individual sport masquerading as a team event. Um, because really in baseball, what you have is about 70 one-on-one um, encounters between a pitcher and a batter. Um, and those can be modeled very well. They're not as uh, dependent on um, other factors like baseball and and football are, or soccer, or you know your football, our American football. Obviously, there's so much dependence on teammates and schemes and you know coaching strategy. Uh, baseball, it's really not you know you, 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 the same picture and the same batter. You can model their outcomes no matter where they're. Uh, you know, what city they're playing in, what stadium they're playing in, who the the other people are on the field. So that's very attractive for model building. And then on top of that, there is more publicly available data on baseball dating back decades than there are for other sports. Other sports took a while to catch up with baseball. uh, So that also made baseball attractive from a model building standpoint
0: and I mean as as great as the the book is because of the the underlining narrative there and the the story of kind of what happened to you and and how you dealt with that it's also appealing because you actually enjoyed some relative success with your with your betting endeavors so can you just kind of touch upon perhaps how you beat the market and what you did to kind of actually turn a profit while you were betting on baseball
1: Sure. So the the book is really a diary of the uh, 2011 baseball season. And it was, it did help in my recovery. Uh, I did, I had a massive leg injury from being run over uh, by an ambulance on, on the streets of uh, Manhattan. And so it did provide a therapeutic benefit to sort of getting up every day and sort of, you know, it felt like I was back at a trading desk. You know, I had, I had models to build and, and inputs to put in. Uh, and so the, the 2011 season was really just me, um, you know, was betting my own account. Uh, and at the same time, you know, sending emails to my, my similar, you know, my buddies who had the similar interests I did. Uh, after the book was completed, um, I handed it into the publisher, and they came back to me that next spring and said, You know, we love it, um, but we need an epilogue because the book's not going to come out for another year till 2013. They said to you, If we gave you the marketing budget for the book, would you be willing to go to Las Vegas? And bet it on baseball games. We think that would be a great story for the book, and we want it to be legal. Um, so we are, you know, we'll, you'll relocate to, to Vegas to do it. And I thought that was a great idea. They, they didn't have to ask me twice. And so I, I was like, and if I'm going to go there, I better tell my, I better tell my friends and family um, because I know they're going to want to invest too. So in addition uh, to going out there. Um, I did raise about a million dollars for as a as a sports betting fund uh, and went to Las Vegas. And that was the epilogue for the book, um, which was really my my season in 2012. Uh, 2011 was more successful, but twenty eleven was lucky. Uh, Not in the sense that, um, you know, I was I was making up numbers, but lucky from the sense that I didn't. uh, You know, I had about a 40 percent return on my capital. um, And my eggs was nowhere near that big. That wasn't repeatable. And I knew that. And the next year, it was in the low teens. And that's what I thought was a realistic fund goal. Now, at the same time, when I wrote the epilogue, I was, and I tried to write it sort of as a business school case study. Um, I certainly pointed out that those returns are not replic- could not be replicated. If you had a fund that was ten times as big, because the market simply wasn't big enough to you know take that much action. So it, it sort of examined the idea of running a a sports fund from that perspective, um, as well as sort of telling my experience of you know what happened
0: and did you i know you said there about like the size of the fund it could kind of limit the success of of your endeavors did you find that the market gradually became more efficient and more adopted to the techniques that you were implementing
1: you know that's a great question ben i never people used to say to me all the time why would you write this um and i would tell them one because it, it, just as i pointed out the market wasn't big enough to run a fund I would never be a pickseller. That's not who I am. Uh, Again, sort of with the Wall Street background, that's not how we do things here, if you feel you are a superior investor, you invest on other people's behalf. You don't sell your research. Um, and as I pointed out, and as we just talked about, the market wasn't big enough to truly like leave my job to run a fund. Um, so in that sense, I had no qualms about writing the book. I also didn't think that what I was going writing about I, I, there was no way I felt that there were going to be bookmakers out there who were like, "Ooh, Joe is you know Joe is using picture era in a different way. We better adjust our models." And I you know I just never thought that as a possibility. That said, I think the in the you know as I said the first uh, the book was about the 2011 season, and we are eight years ahead. And I do feel like the market has moved um, even more quantitative, and there's even less differences between professional models and um, what some what the bookmakers are using and uh, anybody new any new entrants in the market. I can't now I will say I would like to be able to put a number on that and say that the opening line and the closing line. Um, has a forecasting error smaller than it did in two thousand and ten and eleven and twelve i don 't know that I only suspect it, but that would be the true way to measure it like if if people you know if the markets have gotten more efficient, there should be a smaller forecasting error um, in both the opening and or at least in the closing lines um, and i don 't know if that 's true, but I suspect it is
0: and i mean I guess during this period over that, that two thousand and eleven season you you obviously had ample experience with regards to the financial markets, but would you say you kind of learned a lot of what it's like to be a professional better or someone that's really in that grind and trying to make their living from betting on sports?
1: Well, it is a grind. That was a great point. My summer in Vegas in 2012 was a grind. Um, Part of that, uh, part of the, I don't want to say unpleasant, because that's not really the right word, but part of the toil of doing it was I found a very unfriendly uh, business um, in in Las Vegas in the bricks and mortars of Las Vegas. Uh, and I compared that to the financial industry. Um, and there were some things I would have liked to have seen change. some have to a degree. Um, but it was it, in the, the biggest one was I was forced to carry around cash all summer. Uh, because you couldn 't open an account like a brokerage account uh, with online now or not online, but with uh, mobile betting, which has come to Nevada since twenty twelve uh that has you know that would be a lot better now you actually can deposit um, but it was a, it is a grind um, and it, it uh, you know nobody should um, nobody should think it 's not. Uh, the one part that I think is stressful for people as well is the idea of betting other people's money. If you are managing other people's money, that is a stress. If it's, you know, a lot of people don't mind losing their own money, they hate losing other people's money. Now, because I had a ton of experience in the financial industry trading. You know my employer's capital trading my capital trading other people's capital that didn't bother me as much but that is probably something else that can change behavior um that you don't expect for somebody that might be going into it for the first time
0: i guess just another element of added pressure to deal with isn't it
1: oh absolutely it's uh you know financial behavior or behavioral finance as the study um, is very real and it, it, it's much easier to be a paper trader whether you're trading stocks or you know um, EPL futures than it is to you know when you're actually doing it. It can change your behavior. Stress is a real thing.
0: Yeah and I mean one of the things that we kind of focus on at Pinnacle that perhaps some people don't, don't pay attention to is the psychological element of betting. So I'd be interested to know from you obviously there was a lot of Data crunching and, and dealing with numbers, were you also kind of looking into things like behavioral biases that could influence your decision making?
1: Yeah, I tried to be very mechanical, um, but there are, you know, and, and you can really sort of take that question two ways and say when you're looking at the performance of athletes. Are there things that can change their uh, performance as well? Um, And I think to both those questions, whether it's the better or the performer, uh, the answer is yes. I mean, like I say, stress is a real thing. The problem is measuring it, Um, and the problem is always, you know, building a proper model because it's easy afterwards to say, oh, you know, that they weren't you know they weren't motivated to play this game, but unless you have a model where you've identified hundreds of other situations where someone wasn't equally motivated it's you don't really have a model you're still just uh you're still just guessing and and it's sort of the same part of of being of managing capital your own capital there's almost always some slippage that is attributable to some psychological weakness that most humans are prey to. Um, it's doubting your model after it gets cold after it hits a cold streak. Um, it's putting your fingers on the scale when you just can't believe this is the output. Uh, and so those are you know those are things that all professional betters know they have to fight against.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a great way to think of it. Is that the word there is kind of awareness, isn't it? Make sure you have an understanding of these things exist, these things happen. You might not be able to measure them, but at least kind of accept that and understand that. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I, I think that's that's absolutely right. There are um, the other part is I, I think what can give you confidence is really understanding your model as well. Um, and I think in the case that I am not a coder, you know, I, I can build a macro on Excel when I open up the, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, the manuals and, and stuff like that. But sometimes I think that's helpful because if you really have to dig in to, you know, building your model and you can't just hit buttons and get output, you really start to understand the inputs, you understand Sort of the sensitivity of different factors, and I think it can give you confidence when you do hit a cold streak that you kind of understand why as opposed to if you just have a black box and and you've you know created some crazy you know twenty input model that that you know with with all these codependency things that you really don't you really don't understand the souffle that you're making. um I think that makes you even more. Uh, susceptible to those psychological errors uh, later on
0: and i mean if we've probably got people listening to this that they're the aspiring betters they're the people that are putting that work in to try and try and make their money from betting on sports. If we've got any aspiring Joe Peters out there, what would be your words of advice that you've kind of learned along the lines so far?
1: Yeah, I'd say the the biggest one is really understanding your model and the inputs. And the other part is, if you can reverse engineer the bookmaker's line, if you understand which variables are making your uh, model different from the bookmaker's, You've got an edge, and then it's not necessarily a winning edge, but at least you've got an edge in terms of understanding your model. And I think that's—I think that's a huge uh, element to ultimately, you know, building uh, something that's. I, I, I don't really like the word edge, but I like saying smaller forecasting error. Um, if you can build something that has a smaller forecasting error and understand why, um, again, I think that gives you. Uh, uh, it gives you confidence and and you can really point to when things are working or not working the couple factors that is making yours differ from um differ from from the markets and if you know what's different, then you can measure it and that's I think that's the biggest key to uh to building something and I guess
0: specific to your industry, you're very kind of hot on money management staking methods, bankroll management, call it what you want.
1: Absolutely, and you guys write about that. You you have so much content on that that's important, um, and 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 I agree. I even tried contributing or did contribute um, a piece sort of on the uh, um, on why I don't like Kelly, um, and it's because of my financial industry you know background. and I tried to sort of take it from a reverse engineer standpoint of if you are managing money in the you know, professionally in 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 the capital markets, um, you need to you know we sort of have this idea of a riskless return, um, and a riskless return has a certain um, you know certain elements in terms of standard deviation and drawdowns, et cetera. And the idea is that if you ever want to earn an excess return, there's going to have to be some dial that is going to be you know you're going to have to take more risk, right? More risk equals um, higher return, and Therefore, if you can create something in sports betting that has the same risk profile but a higher return, now you know your model actually has an edge. And and what I kind of was trying to show through reverse engineering is – Kelly doesn't really get you there. Kelly always, always, always results in too much risk, even fractional Kelly. Um, I just didn't express it. Real, I had so much trouble expressing that because I think the reason is just sort of the graph of Kelly is 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 not. Correct whether it's not linear or, or it's too steep, um, and and I know I I printed that that article and I got some pushback, but a couple years later, uh, I have seen somebody use that article and I'm not even sure if he writes uh, for Pinnacle, but I know he's European based. I think his name is Joseph B. He may have a he writes a lot about um, you know, football, European football. And, you know, he's kind of reached the same conclusion in, in sort of a different way. And, and and I would say, yes, that is something that aspiring bettors should really, really take a look at is look at their results and go back and say, what would have been the proper staking to return, say, 8%, which is what the markets typically return, um, you know, what staking would have returned 8%, and how much? Then, then let's measure how much risk there was, how much drawdown, how what was the standard deviation of returns, and if you find that you know it's less than, uh, you know, ultimately what you want to do is get your staking so that the risk is similar to the to financial market investing with a higher return. Um, and I have just found that Kelly doesn't do that for me. Um, maybe it does for others, but I, that's something I would say that all. You know, better should explore as well, and I wouldn't just blindly follow Kelly.
0: I think uh, Joseph Buchdahl will be sat there with a wry smile across his face because he seems to always get a, a shout out one way or another on the podcast. Um, he is a pinnacle contributor, yes, and he has done some great stuff. But let's uh, let's kind of move on to the the next phase of your of your betting career, if you will. So you're now you're now it seems heavily involved in golf. So I think the obvious question to start with is why move from baseball to golf?
1: Because the frontier is a lot uh, more attractive. Um, there, from a couple of perspectives. One, just from, a, from an analytical, from a discovery perspective, just where sort of the idea of knowledge for the sake of knowledge. You know, at baseball at this point, we're left on the edges trying to discover stuff that might be a little bit different. Um, but in golf, it's such a new frontier, uh, and there are so few people that have written about it um, that I just feel like it's a green field from both an education standpoint, uh, from an analytic discovery standpoint, and then also from a uh, from a betting standpoint. So all three of those, I think, come together. I really think golf betting is the new frontier of growth. Uh, I hope it is for bookmakers. Um, I I see evidence that it is from a fantasy standpoint. Uh, so I hope I'm you know just sort of on the early waves of of riding interest in in golf analytics and golf betting
0: and are we kind of are we talking about using what's already there so you signed you alluded to earlier about trading bases it was things like using era in a different way is that the same you're taking metrics that are already in golf where it's like shots gain tea to green or greens in regulation whatever it might be are you basically taking the metrics that are already there and just utilizing them better than other people in the market
1: so you've got a couple, a couple reasons. One, why that's possible. Uh, for one thing, the, the golf metrics are only seven years old. Um, and there also, there hasn't been a ton written about them. Um, the golf metrics were really invented by uh, a professor at Columbia university named Mark Brody. Um, and he's, he's a, tremendous individual um in terms of what he's come up with and um i've gotten to have a a number of discussions with him and uh he you know he he truly is about education as well um he most of his writing though has approached strokes game from the concept of making both professional golfers and amateur golfers better uh, because that's his passion now, I tend to take a different angle in that I would rather dig into the data and think about it from a predictive standpoint and from that from sort of that lens, um, there is a lot to be done uh, i think in in the community in the analytics community, um, as far as golf discoveries and i'd say Ben, my biggest Sort of proof of that, the, you know, the, the easy evidence to look at that is, is how much golf markets move from opening to close. And I'm not talking about futures. Um, it, to me, the futures are still sort of unbettable from an investment standpoint because there's just too much spread in them. There's there's too much margin um, for the bookmaker. But it's head-to-head matchups between golfers um, that are priced essentially like any, you know, uh, baseball line uh or you know any any other major sport and those markets move so much from you know they can move 40 cents often um from opening uh to close which tells me that uh the i just you know that just tells me that the opening lines are softer um and that the bookmakers themselves don't aren't as firm in their um models and and their projections as they are in other sports uh so that's why i I definitely see an opportunity uh as well from from a betting standpoint and yes there are ways to use the data better um it's from both announcers to other writers to people that play fantasy i will see them quote numbers and they won't be wrong they're not mistakes but they're not being used maybe in the right context, um, and so I've written about some of that. You know, some I kind of leave to the reader to 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 sort of do the work on their own. Um, there's, you know, there's definitely, and I'd say the most, just the biggest is strength of field adjustments. You know, you, I think the first way that anybody compares golfers these days is to use the advanced strokes gained and just say, okay, which golfer has more strokes gained per round, um, over the last, you know, three months or six months or nine months. And again, that's, that's something that people can differ on, but I can tell you if you're just using that number, uh, it's what it can be wildly uh, misleading uh, based on strength of fields that each golfer, different golfers faced um, in compiling their numbers because of course no one plays exactly the same schedule.
0: And if we get to, I mean, I guess there's similarities there across to baseball as well with just the sheer number of variables that, that have to be considered. Is that something that, whether it's kind of the weather or the pin position or something like that, are those things that you see, as like an advantage to the better that can be used.
1: Yes, uh, I think in in the case of those, you know, when you talk about pin position, say from round to round, or weather, um, those are those would be variables. I think that would go into you know, say some of the prop betting where where you might get uh, will the you know will the winning score be under minus six today or you know will the field be under 71 or over 71 or something like that but the nice thing about strokes gained is if you use it correctly and if you adjust your numbers correctly um, you can uh, you can you can make everything context neutral um, so that someone's past performance uh, is adjusted for um, different weathers that, that different uh, conditions that the fields face, um, et-, et cetera. So that, that's another example of how there's work to be done or there's work that people are doing um, that just isn't out there um, that uh, I think yeah, can be big factors in, in your model. And, and the other example would be um, that I've really started to try to work on this year is... There are different surfaces in the U.S. Uh, between the West Coast and East Coast um, in terms of putting surfaces. Um, out west, because of just because of the weather, we don't freeze and and uh, and unfreeze. Um, the, the greens out here are made of palana, um which is a bumpier grass. It 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 uh, it survives year round, um, and it it. It blooms midday, so it can it, it causes bumpy it causes bumpy greens, uh, as opposed to what now that the tour is on the east coast and it tends to be Bermuda grass, which is more like putting on a pool table. And I think it's I what I've started to do now is try to tag all my all my results or all the golfers' results by surfaces that they're putting on, and, and that's something that people talk about. But they, I've never seen anyone put numbers on it because it's a lot of work to, to actually tag all this data. But if you do it, you know you've got something that other people don't. Uh, so I'd say that would be you know another example of, of a condition that um, you know you can exploit or or you know, try to look at differently.
0: And I'm I'm assuming we've kind of got all this and more in the book. So you've got Joe Peters Tour Guide presents a 2019 Masters Preview, which. Um, when 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 was this published?
1: That was published uh, right at the beginning of February. It came out eight weeks before uh, Masters Week, so it sort of has a two-month uh, shelf life. And the book really serves as one to introduce readers to to Stroke's Gained. And at the same time, try, one of the things I like doing as a writer is trying to entertain people and to sort of captivate them, you know, without you know, without them needing to use a calculator or or open a spreadsheet to enjoy the book. Um, So it starts out with just some stories that Strokes Gained reveals. Um, And I start you know, obviously, with the most popular golfer of, of the last 30 years, um, Tiger Woods, and and sort of try to tell some stories about Tiger that you know we all knew Tiger was great, but the advent or the invention of strokes gained has allowed us to tell that story in a different way. Um, and I love I love doing that that kind of stuff just beyond uh, the gambling. And, I, and I'll I'll give you you know if I were writing an essay right now on the Masters. Um, you know, rather than tell people who I think is going to win, I'd rather sort of try to captivate them first by telling them I am going to try to convince you that Jim Furyk uh, has a better Masters career than Nick Faldo. And on the sur- uh, and on the surface, that's insane because Nick Faldo has won the tournament three times. Um, but when and so his achievements, he he definitely has more achievement at Augusta than Jim Furyk. But if I look at every hole played, every round, every year, I think you know I can stun some people in showing what data reveals. And and then of course you can always take that over to betting, you know, because my ultimate conclusion would be we may differ on that. But if we could hypothetically pick any round um, during Jim Furyk's career and any round during Nick Faldo's career at the Masters. I'll take Furyk, <laughs> and I know the price will be plus money, um, and I'll feel like I have the edge because I actually think he's he's been better on that course than Nick Faldo has. Um, and so I hope to you know kind of surprise people when I do writing like that as well.
0: And uh, kind of the. The intro into to betting on a particular sport for a lot of people tends to be those that are, are a fan of something first. Is this kind of something that someone might be listening to this and they're like, I've, I've never watched golf before, I've never really been that into it, you've, you've piqued my interest in the potential value that might be there in the market. Is it something that they're going to still want to be entertained by or is it just they're going to look for those hardcore numbers and as you said, hopefully you flick towards the end and you say, who's going to win?
1: I can give you two answers to that. Uh, one is that, from you know, just from a personal standpoint, I was much more into baseball growing up, um, and in fact, my years of playing baseball certainly inhibited me from ever being good at golf because I have a baseball swing, um, and that is not necessarily conducive to uh, hitting a golf ball well. So there was some interest for me in golf, but mostly it was data-driven. Now I have a couple coworkers who. Have never played golf and have never bet on golf. They, never, they weren't even really aware you could. Um, and within the last six months, I have started. Give you know, I would as I was writing the book, I was starting to give them my picks and and they are now huge golf fans to the point that on Wednesday they're like, I don't understand why these tournaments start Thursday. Like we could start these on Wednesday. <laughs> and and they, they, they have comments on guys that are, you know, 50, 60 deep in the PGA tour and not just Rory McIlroy and Tiger Woods, et cetera. Um, so they've actually become fans of the PGA tour through betting. And, Again, I always think that's a great lesson for the professional sports leagues. You know, I I guess my, my sort of best mate at work uh, cannot wait for golf tournaments to start now. And he never watched them six
0: months ago. I mean, there, there tends to be kind of two two schools of thought, if you like, within, within the betting world. Some people will say um, you can't get emotionally attached to a sport. Being a fan for it isn't good. It just kind of clouds your d- judgment and things like that. Others will then say you can't beat some um, some expert knowledge or the ability to kind of just use initiative and spot things that potentially the numbers don't. So where do you kind of sit within that? Do you need to be a fan of a sport to bet on it? Is it an advantage? I think you
1: have to have some some working knowledge of the sport, either through participation or from being a fan for a long time, because if you don't, like I said early in the podcast, then you don't understand your model, and you're never going to sort of get comfortable with the idea of, is it cold, or do I really understand this sport? Like, if I'm betting on cricket, I would have have no idea whether to trust my model or not, or whether to have confidence in it. So I think that helps. Um, The emotional attachment part to favorite teams, etc., also goes to the you know, behavioral finance weakness that we might all have. And you should try to guard against that. Um, And so I I think it's somewhere in the middle. And I'd say, um, yeah, I think it's somewhere in the middle. You you definitely want some knowledge, uh, but you want to be able to sever your ties to whatever team you're emotionally involved with. Because if you if you're really trying, again, it's sort of betting as an entertainment versus betting as an investment. Um, if you're really trying to bet as an investment, then there has to be times that you are betting against your emotional interest because you know there'll, there'll just be times where your team is overvalued um, or its opponent is undervalued, and that calls for a bet against your emotions. Uh, and it's, that can be tough.
0: So you've kind of you've done you've done baseball, you've done golf. is there any other sports in the locker there that you're now thinking where can i where can I find the inefficiencies next
1: yeah i don't i nothing comes to mind. I hope golf lasts for a couple of years i I hope it it really is a green field of both writing um and and betting opportunities and if it the the best thing will be if it becomes more popular. Um, as you know, if more people turn to it, that will bring more capital into the market, and then they maybe they get a little deeper, um, and of course they'll get, they'll also get more sophisticated. Uh, so it's a trade-off as well. Uh, but right now, I, there's there's no other. I'd say two years ago, before I started in the golf, I had this idea that I think there's something there in golf. Um, there's nothing else right now that um, sort of that that I feel. That I see
0: on the horizon. Many people kind of believe that that money shapes markets, and that's why we often see with um, whether it's like the Super Bowl in the NFL or, or the World Cup in soccer, it's a lot more difficult from a certainly from a professional betting perspective to kind of find that. I don't. I know you don't like the word edge, but find that edge. Would you say that when it comes around to the Masters, it's going to make your task or whoever's betting on it a bit more difficult because there's so much recreational money involved?
1: I feel no right now. Uh, I feel I'd be, I think it will get more difficult if more people enter the market and uh, if there's a lot more money in the market during, say, the St. Jude Invitational in June, then I think the... Um, there's, so, there will be so much more smart money that it will, you know, there'll have to be an adjustment. Um, I feel though, right now, I feel like the Masters just creates more opportunities. Like, I don't feel like the matchup odds between the golfers are going to be any different than they have been in January through March. Uh, I just feel like they might be deeper with, with bigger limits, and so I, I view that as, as a positive. I could be wrong, but. But we'll we'll see. One thing that has disappointed me, um, Ben, from all bookmakers' perspectives is I understand in a typical tournament they don't attract a lot of futures money across the board. They're only getting it on a few golfers, and that leaves the bookmaker in a vulnerable position. Um, So I can at least – somewhat sympathize with the large margin that exists in the futures market for the masters it more annoys me because i know they are getting action across two dozen golfers and yet the margin still stays huge in those futures markets so that's the first step i'd like to see Um, i would like to see more money creating smaller margins Um, and that way even if the money is smarter um, at least it's it's it's, pretty, it, uh, it's creating a more uh, efficient market. Um, but so that could be something I see hopefully out you know a year or two out there.
0: And I know you're you're obviously keen for people to to go out and buy the book. I think you've done a great job of giving some insight into what they can expect from reading it. But can we give away one little perhaps gem of advice or, or something for the upcoming masters that that's in the book that people should look out for?
1: Yeah, I, I think that yeah, there's something specific to the Masters that I talk about in the book, and and this is uh, I think this is new, and this will be new to to readers, or to listeners. Um, in all golf modeling or betting, people always you know there there's certain inputs, and one input, of course, is how well is a golfer playing, and people have different models in terms of how far they go back is it three months that you do is it a year is it a hundred rounds etc then the other factor is what's what's known as the course factor how has a player played at this tournament the specific tournament over time because there's there's this idea of horses for courses um of course coming from horse racing where some horses run better on dirt than grass and and vice versa um what is I go into in the book, and this is something that that listeners should be aware of. There is no course that the on tour on the PGA Tour that has a bigger correlation in predicting uh, past to present than the Masters or the courses Augusta National. The course factor, your history at Augusta has a bigger influence um, or is more correlated to what you're going to do in the coming year um, than at any other course uh, on tour. Um, So you really want to take a close look at who has played well in the past at the Masters and who has played poorly. And if you have a golfer like Dustin Johnson, who is unquestionably one of the greatest golfers in the world, one of the most skilled and talented golfers, who has never really played well at the Masters, to me, you shouldn't be betting on him to. Well, he'll he'll cure it this year. Um, he'll figure it out this year, because it, your course history really matters at Augusta. Um, so I would say that's that's sort of the one big insight from the book.
0: And if you kind of, I'm just kind of interested to know, If you flip that the other way, you've got someone like Jordan Spieth, who obviously has a great record at the Masters, and anyone following go, golf over the last kind of. Few months to year, I mean, he's really had a bit of a a fall from grace. So, would you then flip that and say, although he's like had a bit of a shocker recently, his previous form at the Masters is great, so kind of take that into account?
1: Yeah, bet, absolutely. Bet. Jordan Spieth is probably the most interesting or polarizing uh, person or golfer that you could choose from a model perspective because his course history at Augusta is superior to every other golfer who has ever played the course uh, over at least five years. And, and I do touch on that in the book, and that includes Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson, um, who have – sparkling histories as well and what we're really talking about is not just playing well at Augusta because obviously those are all great golfers, but raising their game at Augusta above their baseline performance and Jordan Spieth has performed above his baseline, like I say, at the Masters more than any other player historically now, obviously you alluded to it as well, his baseline has never been lower entering the event than it is this year So do I expect him to perform better at the Masters than he has the last six months, than he's displayed the last six months? Yes, I do. But he's starting at such a low um, point, I don't think that makes him a threat to win. Um, So where do I come out in the book? I actually have him ranked 10th. Um, And there's no, on a neutral surface, on a course they've never played before, I think Jordan Spieth is, I mean, he's dropping fast to the point that You know, we see him as an underdog to guys that are ranked 50th in the world, and I would say properly, Um, but at Augusta, I will certainly raise my expectations to him above his current level, but his current level is so low that I can't put him into the contenders as as really being, uh, um, really having the ceiling to win.
0: think there's whether whether it's golf whether it's baseball I think there's so many lessons that can be learned from reading either of your books and anyone that's kind of listened to this podcast I'm sure is eager to hear more from you I'd I'd kind of like to know a lot of the time and I think we did it earlier we kind of say what is it better should be doing to improve performance is there anything that you think is common across the betting audience that they really shouldn't be doing and it's almost um has a damaging effect on performance that people might not realize.
1: It almost always comes down to to bankroll management. Uh, And I think the the sort of the proof of that is I, you know, to sort of say to someone, hey, just straight up, how were your picks over the last month? You know, and they'll say something like, well, you know, it was 19 winners, 22 losers, but I'm down 15 units. And and right there, that kind of will tell the story. Um, So I, I think it's the biggest thing is, Improving or really being aware of your bankroll management, because I tend to find that most betters vary their betting based on if they're hot or cold, and that's not the right time to vary or that's not the right factor to use and whether you should be increasing or decreasing your stake size it should be whether you think you have um, a, a bigger quote-unquote edge um, per game and so I think that's sort of the biggest difference is I see people that do get on hot streaks and they don't have enough capital to show for it at the end because they you know assumed it was never going to end and they were betting double or triple on the eighth game of a streak compared to what they did when they started. So I think it's if you can take a real sober look at your capital management, um, you can just improve your returns, whether it's lowering your losses or, you know, increasing your wins just through better capital management.
0: Yeah, I guess the hope is there that kind of people take on board these educational messages. They they listen to words of advice and all in all the, the betting audience becomes more sophisticated. In, t- in terms of the the betting industry as a whole, where do you kind of see the the future developing? What do you think it has in store?
1: Well, it's a, It's a great question and 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 I spent the last couple years actually trying to enter the industry from the counter side of the business uh, in terms of buying an existing bricks and mortar uh, and and getting together investors to buy bricks and mortar. Um, licensee in, uh, in Nevada. Um, and this was prior to the overturning of the Supreme Court thing because I really, I, I kind of saw that as a massive growth possibility as well. But I do think there are some innovations that the business can take that is going to ultimately increase handle. Um, and one, I think that. They need to view themselves a little bit more as being in the entertainment business in the sense of what they're competing for, what marginal dollar they're competing for. And to that end, they should be thinking of creating or inventing games or new betting methods that will increase interest Um, so that... There's not too much fantasy money that's siphoned away from this from this industry, so I think I'd like to see a little more creativity um, from the from the industry in terms of new offerings. I don't think there's been really any product offering innovations over the last two decades that have matched, say, um, some of the innovations of whether it's an online book or a mobile apps. Um, I think the user experience can still uh, improve from that standpoint uh, and then ultimately you know i do think and i think a lot of people feel this way 10 years down the road um there will be at least some sort of peer-to-peer offerings that are more common um in terms of so that the bookmaker is collecting rent uh, much um as opposed to sort of uh being uh you know ris- being at risk versus the player and I, I always compare that to casinos and i always point out to people that the the casino does not play poker against poker players they merely collect rent um, to facilitate other poker players being face to face at a table and i do think that ultimately we will see some sort of movement in that direction um in in the uh, industry as well
0: i guess we'll just have to wait and see won't we I just want to say, Joe, thanks for coming on. I mean, it's really appreciated, and I'm sure, I'm sure everyone that's listening in has, has kind of been writing away, scribbling away some notes for the upcoming Masters, but there's your insight kind of goes far beyond that. So, I mean, it's, it's surely been really useful for the listeners.
1: Oh, ben, I love being on with you, and, and Pinnacle and Pinnacle does more to help the industry from both a reputational standpoint and an educational standpoint than anyone else out there. So, it's a, obviously, it's a pleasure to be on with you.
0: Yeah, we're trying our best. Um, if anyone wants to buy Joe's book, it's Joe Peter's Tour Guide Presents, a 2019 Masters Preview. And Joe, I'm assuming it's Amazon and, and elsewhere?
1: It's, it's just on Amazon. This book, uh, because it only had a two-month shelf life, uh, it's, it's available on Amazon in both digital and paperback format.
0: Thanks, Joe. And the Masters is fast approaching, so anyone who's thinking about betting on the event, I suggest you move quickly and snap up Joe's book. As always, there's more information on all the topics we've covered today on Pinnacle's betting resources and at Pinnacle Sports on Twitter. We'll be back with another podcast soon, but until then, bye for now.